The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Roeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Zippity, zippity, doodah. Just a little giddy today here on Walking Through the Big Book with uh, Chris Schroeder and your co-host, the Monty Man. How you doing, folks out there? I hope you're doing well. I hope your day is going well. Uh, remember, a calendar date is just a calendar date. A day actually in itself cannot be bad. Only you and I, or you and I's, or mine or yours, attitude can be that way. So uh, I, I hope you're really, I really do hope and trust that you're having a good one. Chris, how you doing, buddy? Great, Monty. Great. It's beautiful weather out here in North Jersey, and I'm really enjoying the tail end of the summer here. Not not too uh, not too humid. Uh, it's a little humid, but it's uh, it's better than being twenty below. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, we we don't have the humidity, and it's perfect out here. So I, we got one up on you, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, we left off last week, uh, listeners, with. Uh, the first half of There is a Solution in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're reading from, uh, which edition are we reading from today? This is a fourth edition. Fourth edition. Uh, okay. Eighth printing or something like that. Okay. So uh, we are um, starting at the top of page 23 of There is a Solution, and we're going to finish up uh, this chapter today. So let's do it. You know, you know, Monty, before we get started, there's, there's been a real interest, I think, in a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of, uh, treatment uh, research that revolves around the, the treatment for for addictions uh-huh. that's swinging back toward uh, the big book the uh, the Cape Cod symposium that, that's coming up that we're going to be at um, in September I think it's the second second week in September on Cape Cod uh, they have different presentations and I believe there's a couple of them one of them is uh, the efficacy of the twelve step um, Model from Alcoholics Anonymous and addictions treatment, and you know I think for uh, I think for a long period of time things really swung toward the clinical, uh, more more psychological and uh, 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 psychiatric. I, you know, I, but there's always been the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's always been the twelve step fellowships, and there's always been a huge amount of recovery because of that. And I, you know, I really I really feel that. Um, uh, the pendulum is swinging back in the other direction, and a lot of people who uh, who make their livelihoods through uh, the treatment for alcoholism are uh, are are paying a, a renewed respect uh, to this process. And you know, you you and I are going going through this book very very uh, diligently, 
and uh, we're getting involved in a lot of different minutiae that ha- that has to do with this book. But the fact of the matter is, is this is an incredibly valid and efficacious uh, uh, pro- uh, process for recovery from uh, alcoholism and other uh, other substance abuse uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I'm glad, I'm really, really glad that uh, that you've uh, offered me this opportunity to uh, to do this show with you because I, I, I truly think that there uh, there is so much in this book. It, it's so easy to say, oh, that book was written in 1939, you know, they were only a couple of years sober, you know, they weren't professional uh, uh, treatment people. But you know what? They they just got so much stuff right. Uh, they yeah. they recognized immediately that it, that that the spiritual the spirit of the individual needed to be treated, um, and they got about the business of showing you how uh, you can participate in in spiritual healing, and that has definitely uh, definitely proven to be uh, monstrously successful uh, across the planet. As far as uh, as alcoholism uh, uh, recovery is concerned, do, 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 so do I hear you saying that their uh, treatment centers are applying and implementing the book more? I think I think the the people who um, uh, the the people who the treatment centers listen to, the clinicians, uh, uh-huh. the, the people who give the lectures at the symposium. Oh, I see. Okay, I think those people are uh, a lot of those people are swinging uh, swinging back. Uh, toward this, and it's you know that's prob- those uh, those topics are probably going to be well attended uh, at, at at Cape Cod. It's um, the the tough thing in modern treatment, I think, is balancing the clinical with the spiritual. Uh, you have the big book people who say, "All you need is the big book. All you need is to do the program," and then you have the clinical people that, you know, they're using every modern uh, therapeutic technique known to man in their uh, in their modality. Uh, I, but I I think the really really successful uh, treatment centers are ones that understand both sides of the spectrum and are in, are in, are able to integrate. Uh, the best of both of those worlds. It just seems to me like uh, that's going to—that's really going to increase outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. That is—that's really good news because uh, this stuff is. Well, you know, you know, people will get real critical about Bill W. We've all heard it. You know, well, he was a snake in the grass, and he was a shrewd <laughs> businessman, and all he was after was money, and what an alcoholic, right? Well, you know what? He was God's alcoholic. He he was. I don't. I don't think he was after money, uh, in you know, uh, in an out of balance way. He wanted. He no. wanted to be paid for His, yeah. the authorship of the books that he wrote, and that's really the money he took. I don't. I don't believe he took. Uh, um, took a lot of money uh, from the Alcoholics Anonymous dues and fees. No, uh, you know, he didn't. I, I really doubt that. And, and again, there were some really good qualities to, to the man. Uh, one, one thing was he received an incredible amount of criticism. Criticism came from the Akron and Cleveland area and, and, and some of the other parts of the Midwest at him uh, in an almost unending stream. And he had a habit of non, non-response. In other words, he wouldn't engage. He wouldn't fight back. Uh, he, you know, turning the other cheek is uh-huh. basically how he handled that criticism. And 
uh, he rarely would have a harsh word uh, for anyone. You know, so there's a lot of really, really good qualities that he had. Yeah. Uh, you know, yes, he in his in his later years he became quite the ladies' man. You know, <laughs> and, uh, to a fault. Uh, but um, but I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you what the you know we're all human. We all fall short in word, thought, and deed every single day. And having someone who is not quite the perfect saint um, as uh, as uh, the co-founder of um, of Alcoholics Anonymous and basically the principal author uh, of most of the decent literature, uh, I feel very comfortable with the fact that, sure. that, that he was uh, he was not uh, portraying himself to be uh, this holier than thou individual. Um, yeah. You know, because uh, it'd be very, very difficult for, uh, for I think, any alcoholic to, to stand up there and and uh, lobby for sainthood. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> there, there's just so much uh, in the past of the alcoholic that makes it very, very difficult for them to, you know, to <laughs> yeah. really have uh, that that incredible sense of how wonderful they are. Although it sometimes happens, uh, yeah. but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But um, but you know, uh, Bill was Bill was our guy, and he certainly was uh, God's alcoholic. Yeah, you uh, you know, a lot of people have said uh, God got tired of seeing us all die, uh, so he, he put a uh, he put a stock shyster and a proctologist together, and here we are. Yeah, <laughs> you know? uh, God does <laughs> work like in uh, in mysterious ways. I like that. Anyway, um, you know, what we were covering last week was about the first part of There is a Solution. And what it was, what it was basically hammering us on was after the first drink. What happens to the body after the first drink? And it went over time and time again what the phenomenon of craving is, what they call the allergy uh, to alcohol. And the allergy is basically a manifestation in a craving for more alcohol. Uh, sometimes it's it's such a strong craving. There's practically nothing that's going to keep the alcoholic from getting more alcohol or drinking more. You'll see someone as drunk as they could possibly be. They can't even walk, and they're still drinking. You know what what's happening with them is they're suffering from that craving, that allergy to the body, which which is a, a biological and a mental um, full blown craving for more alcohol. Uh, the shift in this particular chapter is going to happen when I when I start to read. Obviously, if once you start drinking, you can't stop until you're unconscious or in jail or, or whatever, it's a bad idea for you to start. That leads us into this section of the chapter, which basically talks about the obsession of the mind. If we know time after time after time putting alcohol in our body creates problems for us, why then do we do it time and time again? And I'm, te- I'm telling you, there's been a lot of literature that's been written, and I've read a lot of it, on alcoholism and treatment for, uh, for alcoholism. And, you know, I still love the big book more than anything else that's ever been written. Because in plain layman's terms, uh, and kind of clumsy layman's terms, it lays out exactly what our problem is. And once you truly understand, once you really really fully concede to your innermost self what that problem is, it doesn't leave you a lot of options. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I would rather have somebody tell me the truth, Monty, 
and and at least allow me the dignity of dealing with what that truth is than for somebody to minimize my problem. You yeah. Know, like a, a, a lot of times we'll go to people and they'll say, "Oh, you know, you're not such a you're not such a bad guy. You just need to not drink as much or or, or whatever they do or whatever they say." That's that's unhelpful minimization. We're in way more trouble than that if we're alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I would rather be told the truth so that maybe then I could start to deal with it in a way that it can be dealt with. And that's really what what, uh, what these chapters do. Uh, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. But I'm going to start reading on the top of page 23. Okay. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Uh, and that's absolutely true. Yes, we've got, uh, we've got a physiological problem. That's, that's our liver and pancreas throw us into uh, an uncontrollable craving once we ingest alcohol. But the main problem is putting alcohol in our body. The worst decisions you've ever made in your life, Monty, you did sober. You took the first drink sober. Sober, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's the problem, (laughs) taking the first drink. Everybody wants to say, well, I got way too drunk and got a DWI. Well, no. The problem was you took the first drink. If you're an alcoholic, you need to know that taking the first drink is like taking the 20th. That's what it's like. Yeah. You know, that's what's going to happen to you. So the problem centers in our mind. Uh, and we do have an obsession. They call it a type of insanity. And if you look at it in, in insanity, that's a very good description of the alcoholic going to the liquor store, going up to the bartender and asking for a bottle or a drink. That is insane for an alcoholic to do. No matter what, whatever reason you come up with in your mind, it's insufficient compared to the trouble you're likely to get in. So what is it? What, what is that? And he's going to talk a little bit about it. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a 100 alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw, if you draw this crazy reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Sometimes in full-blown alcoholism, when faced with the absolute truth, it's not something that can register. It can't sink in. You know, before I was really in trouble and really had a desire to stop drinking, if someone came up to me and said, you should stop drinking, it's my brain was almost pre-programmed to allow that information to pass right through without sticking. And uh, a lot of times, if people would ask me, well, why did you get so drunk? That, that's not... That's not a question I have really the ability to deal with, number one, or to answer. So, so I will come up with a bunch of alibis. You know, mm-hmm. she left me, or, you know, I lost my job, or, or, you know, I just couldn't take, you know, work was really tough today. You know, you'll come up with these crazy reasons. But none of them make any sense compared to what can happen when you, when you start to drink. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took the first drink than you have. 
Some drinkers have excuses with, with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. You know, I was always trying to get back to when alcohol really made me feel good, but I was way past the point of that happening. I was so far down in my alcoholism that to to drink was to die a little bit, Monty. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I would always hope that I could get that warm, fuzzy glow and feel larger than life, kind of like I did when I was drinking in high school. But it was just, it was you know, my drinking had just gone way past that point. It was almost, you know, survival drinking now. And it was very, very bleak and very gr- grim and scary and lonely. And, and you know, I, st- I still did it every day. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. Here, this is very important. (laughs) At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, He passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case before it is suspected. Now, a lot of people will give us advice, like just don't take the first drink, you know. Now, that's good advice for a heavy drinker. However, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Making a decision to not drink is not a defense against it if you're an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And the worst part is this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it's suspected. So I, I've heard it described like this. The chains of alcoholism are too soft to feel until they're too strong to break. Wow. In, in other words, by the time we really, really want to separate from alcohol, we've passed the point of being able to do so just because we want to. And Chris, I got, I got to ask here, uh, sure. where it reads, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. That state he passes into is not necessarily intoxication, is it? No, no, it's that it's the subtle form of insanity, or it's that strange mental blank spot that precedes the first drink. Yeah. Again, you make your biggest mistakes sober. Sober, that's right. You have your relapse sober. Sober. And that that in in that is the crux of our problem. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. When they say in drink, that doesn't mean while they're drinking. It means before they drink and after they drink. Mm. In drink. They've lost the power of choice in drink. They've lost the power of choice to to not drink, and they've lost the power of choice how much they're going to drink when they start. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force 
the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defense against the first string. Another thing that you'll hear people say is, I just need to keep my memory green, and that's all I need to do. Well, it says here, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. So all of your past history on how many times you shot yourself in the foot with booze is not a defense against drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, we're, in, we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, by the time we get to this point, Monty. Um, If we're without defense against the first drink and we're without defense uh, on how much we drink, we we could easily drink ourselves to death tonight. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't have the power. The power must manifest, and this this is what we're going to be talking about in, uh, uh, in the next couple of chapters. It must manifest from a power greater than ourselves. Yeah. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begin to drink in this nonchalant way after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? This has happened to me, Monty, and when this happens, this is very scary. I put myself uh, through a 28-day treatment program just because alcohol was killing me, not because I had DUIs or the boss was upset. I did this because I was, I was personally concerned with my alcoholism. And I put myself in a 28-day program, and then I was in an outpatient. I was going to support group meetings. And you know what? I was about 85 days um, sober. And, and on, my way, on my way to a support group meeting, the thought crosses my mind that, you know, I haven't been drunk in 85 days. You know, I, I can't even really remember what it's like to be drunk. I'll bet you if I bought a gallon of vodka and drank it, it would really help me with all this. It would remind me how bad it is. It would really help me with all this not drinking stuff. So, in effect, I bought a gallon of vodka and started drinking it to improve the quality of my sobriety. <laughs> now, you know, only an alcoholic would come up with one of these. But i got to tell you, I was absolutely serious about this not drinking stuff. So how the obsession of the mind had to get in was to convince me that drinking would help that. Oh, man. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a mental obsession. And here's what, here's what happened. In my, into my, I'm just starting my third glass, and it dawns on me what a mistake I've made. I've opened up the cage door to the beast, and the beast is going to drag me around by my neck until he is done with me because mm-hmm. I've opened the doors to active drinking again. And I was pounding my desk saying, I can't believe I was this stupid. Now, here's the thing. Was I insane after I was drunk, or was I insane before I was drunk? Before. Before. Absolutely. That's correct. Yeah. I made the big mistake sober. I realized what a mistake it was after I started to feel the effects of the vodka. 
that scared me to death, and it led to seven months of the most unbelievably alcoholic, alcoholic drinking I've, I've ever experienced in my life. It was unbelievably painful. And it was all about buying a gallon of vodka to improve my sobriety. Now, now no one, no one I knew uh, in outpatient or anywhere else had more of a desire to stay separated from alcohol than me. I've got to tell you. I, was, I put myself through this. I was paying for it myself. I, I, I didn't know what else to do. I was that serious about not drinking. And I drank anyway. That scared me to death. I really thought, this is it. And it says, and it says at the end here, what's the use anyhow? I, I mean, that's what I said. I said, if I can't stay away from alcohol, even wanting to stay away as much as I do, I'm in big trouble, you know. I, I can't do this. And, I, and I, I started drinking for seven more months until, you know, the, the absolute end where, you know, I, 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 I was unbelievably desperate. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. And unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. Now, let's ask ourselves a question here. If we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, what is human aid, Monty? Would you say support groups are human aid? Sure. I would. Yeah. Would you say sponsors are human aid? Yep. I would. You know, or would you say counselors or therapists are human aid? Yes. I would. Mm -hmm. We've placed ourselves past that. We need more than that. You know, we're in real trouble here. You know, so somebody asking you about your, you know, how do you feel? Sad, mad, happy, or glad? You know, in a support group or something is not going to cut it. You are in real <laughs> trouble here. So, are you saying? Are you? Are, are, okay, I'm playing devil's advocate. Are, are sure. you? Are you dare to say that meetings are human aid? I I would say meetings are a way to participate in the atmosphere whereby you can come into contact with the power greater than yourself. But in and of but themselves... A, a meeting is not treatment for alcohol. Right. Thank you. <laughs> okay? A meeting is a place where people can fellowship together and, and try to do what they, what, what, you know, together what they can't do by themselves. But the whole point... Here, here again, it's, it's the, the tail wagging the dog. You know that great painting on the Sistine Chapel of, uh, of Adam, like, pointing up to God, and you yep. see the finger pointing up, and God is pointing back down? Mm -hmm. You've got to understand that the, the human aid are the fingers. They're the fingers that point to the ultimate solution. And the ultimate solution is God. Yeah. This is a divine help program. A lot of people don't want to hear that and don't want to deal with it. But the fact of the matter is, is a 12-step recovery program is a divine help yeah. program. It's not a fellowship help program. Yes, the fellowship is there for us to support each other and to remind each other on a day-to-day -day basis what we need to do to participate in the maintenance of our spiritual condition. But... But what we can do on our own is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, the power has to come, has to manifest through us from a power greater than ourselves. This is this is the big book. I mean, this is the message of the big book. There's a lot of people who don't like 
the message of the big book or want to water it down or want to change it and and that's fine everyone has the ability uh or or the right to do whatever they want to do you know there are no ironclad rules but this is a this is a suggested pro suggested program of recovery it's not a program of suggestions it's a suggested recovery program so if you want to try the Alcoholics Anonymous recovery program, this is what you need to do. Otherwise, you're doing something else, which is fine. But <laughs> you know, you know, whatever whatever way you're working, your program may not have you know 200 promises. It may not have uh, permanent long-term recovery as as a you know as an end game. Uh, you got to be very, very careful when you take things menu style. Yeah, right. Um, that's why I don't. That's why I don't like that. Take what you need and leave the rest stuff. They tell to the, to the newcomers. I didn't know what I needed, Chris. You know, the, 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 I think the reason why people say that is because they don't want to drive anybody off. They don't want to scare anybody away. They're afraid that if they if they give them too much all at once. Uh, or tell them that this is about God, that, that, that they'll leave. The fact of the matter is, is, is if we scare them away with the recovery program or with the hopelessness of their condition, alcohol will scare them back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, may, maybe, they're, maybe they're not ready to completely give themselves to this simple program, and, and, and that's okay, too. Uh, but but uh, let's, just, let's just assume for a moment that they are what this book calls a hopeless or real alcoholic they aren't gonna be able to maintain any any anything like sobriety out there on their own no matter what they do um if they've placed themselves beyond human aid uh um then then you know the only hope is a complete conversion experience a complete psychic change a complete rearrangement of personality and like carl jung talked about and uh and uh, you know what bill wilson discovered in the Oscar group and if that's what you need, then we, you know we should be telling people that that's what you need instead of saying, "Don't worry, you know, take what you want, leave the rest." You know, easy does it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> don't rush things. I, I mean, I, I mean, I think people say those things because they're afraid of scaring people away. Uh -huh. uh, and you know, the fact the fact of the matter is, is is you have to worry about the people that are dying. You know, yeah. and 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 if somebody's dying, I, I really think the best thing to do is to tell them the truth, and then to really offer them uh, what has worked for so many people, so many times for so many years. Um, <clears throat> these stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the fourth step, the leveling of our pride, uh, the, the, the fifth and, and ninth step, the confession of shortcomings, which the process required for its successful consummation, the fifth step. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness of futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven and have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. 
And that's true for anybody that's had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps. They'll agree with those sentences. That, that's what happens to us. Yeah. The great fact is this, and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God, towards God's universe. Another thing that you hear a lot is don't make any changes in the first year. Okay? Mm-hmm. How about this? You need to revolutionize your whole attitude toward life, toward your fellows, and toward God's universe. In other words, everything. <laughs> yeah. so, and uh, that's the truth of the matter. Um, candy coating it is is basically saying, you know, e- easy does it, don't uh, you know, don't get, don't make any changes. You need to make all kinds of changes uh, if you if you want to uh, if you want to be able to uh, achieve recovery. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. I, I never believed, Monty, in an interventionary deity. In other words, I thought, yeah, okay, God's out there, but he, he has no concern about me. He's certainly not manip- manipulating any situations for me. He's not paying attention. And, and if I had any idea of God, that's the way I believed. However, when I started to apply these spiritual principles and started to take these spiritual steps, I started to see what I took as direct proof of an interventionary deity. Yeah. Things were happening in my life that I could not explain through coincidence. I could not explain in any other way, except there's a divine loving presence that's paying attention to what I'm doing and helping me do it. That's that's the only way I can explain it. And, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult when you start talking about uh, God and the manifestation of God, because it's such an, an awesome... Uh, uh, experience and it's so large and all-encompassing. It, it doesn't do it justice to use mere human words sometimes. Uh huh. Yeah. But I, I will tell you that this is an experience that we have had. The people who have gone through these steps and really, really tried to work a spiritual program have had experiences of an interventionary deity. It's it's amazing, and you, you, you got to understand. I was I was agnostic and scientific and everything else uh, back back in the day, and I really it really had to be shown to me. I was the doubting Thomas. You know, you, I had to be shown, and and I was shown. I was shown through my own experience and my experience working with others that you can access the power of God. It's accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, the other to accept spiritual help. Those, Monty, those are your two choices if you're alcoholic, okay? You can, you can blot out of your mind the consciousness of your intolerable situation as best you can, or you can accept spiritual help. And it's funny, the alcoholic will go, well, tell me a little bit more about that alcoholic death. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yes, I do. Neither one of those solutions sound really good. They really don't. Only on the other side, only after experiencing recovery, does the spiritual help part make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. 
This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Here he goes into, uh, I'm going to read this story real quick. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist, then he had gone to Europe placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Carl Jung, who prescribed for him. Through experience, though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with an unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. He had his head shrunk by the best. His head was so small you could put it on a mantle. <laughs> I mean, you, if you have a personal, personal, uh, personal time with Carl Jung, it didn't get much better than that. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. He didn't even, he, he got drunk on the train leaving Switzerland, okay? <laughs> More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. This is Roland Hazard. Yep. So he returned to this doctor, whom he had uh, admired, and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great, that was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined confined he can go anywhere on this earth other free men may go without disaster provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude it's conditional so, so, uh, go ahead money it's conditional uh, absolutely yeah uh, a certain simple attitude the attitude is a spirit a spiritual attitude yeah you know so when the doctor told him uh told him the truth i mean that was actually a good thing he basically said only in rare cases have we seen people recover through religious conversion experiences? I would go find an evangelical organization and jump in with both feet. That's basically what Carl Jung told uh, uh, told Roland Hazard, because that's the only time Carl Jung ever saw anybody that alcoholic recover. Uh-huh. Some of our alcoholic readers may think that they can do without spiritual help. Uh, let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his, uh, with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what is called vital spiritual experiences. The, to me, these occurrences are phenomena. Phenomena are things that, you know, just happen to happen. You know, mm -hmm. you can't really make them happen. They appear in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast on one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That's that personality change. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he had reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. 
this hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling them that while religious convictions were good, in his case, it did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself uh, when he had the extraordinary experience, which we have already told you made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. The distinguished American psychologist William James in his book Varieties of Religious Experience indicates a multitude of ways in which men have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There is no friction among us over such matters. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify themselves with as individuals. This is an entirely personal affair, which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies, but most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it, then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who were once in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, clear-cut directions are giving, given showing how we recovered. I'll read that again. Yes. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing counts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholics, men and women, desperately in need, will see these pages, and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they will be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too, I must have this thing. One thing I want to, I, I do want to say uh, before we close today um, is back back uh, one page, the last paragraph. He talks about um, this hope, however, was destroyed by the doctor telling him that while his religious convictions were were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. It, it, when I first heard that, I thought somebody was telling me that. Uh, my direct relationship with God wasn't good enough to keep me sober. That's not what it says. No. No. It, it, it says that, that although his convictions were good, you know, you can be, have a conviction about something, but no more have it in your heart than the man on the moon. You know, the way I see it, Monty, and I agree with you, the, the way I see it is you can have religious convictions yeah. however faith without works is dead there you go if you're not a actually applying the spiritual uh principles of your religion in an active way you're not going to develop the faith that works for recovery from alcoholism listen i've worked with a lot of uh, religious folk I, I mean you know i've i've uh, i've been a spiritual advisor to priests 
you know, they, they know way more about theology than I do, but they were coming, they were coming uh, to me to learn how to get a direct relationship with God. Uh-huh. They didn't know how. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they had been so, they had been so overburdened with, with, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, religious dogma and, 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 and procedures and the business of religion and all this other stuff that they'd lost sight of uh, the prize. And they, they were coming to me, who at that time was like a bad electrician, you know, <laughs> to, learn, to learn how to get back to that, that vital connection to God. It's, it's you know, uh, absolutely we have to grow in, a, in, in, uh, in awareness. We have to grow spiritually. We have to grow uh, deeper and deeper into our relationship with our Creator, and you know, there's uh, there's a lot of ways that uh, people do that. Uh, there's a lot of really great uh, religions out there. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ways to embellish. H- however, the, the spiritual principles inherent in in this book are, are non-negotiable as far as recovery is concerned. Yeah. You know, you can negotiate a lot of things after you've found recovery. You know, you can broaden and deepen that experience with God in many, many different ways. AA was really not about saving one's soul. It was about saving one's ass. <laughs> and by saving their ass, they're, saving, they're allowing them the ability to save their soul, if that makes any sense. It makes absolute sense. I had to get my, my head had to be cleared out. I had to be able to think again and, and, and change my thinking so I could think properly before I could ever develop, uh, or, or before my my head knowledge of God turned into a relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Money, I hate to do this to you. Yep, but we gotta I gotta go. Know, I've got a, I've got another thing that I have to do in about two minutes. All right, my friend. Once again, another great show, folks. Uh, don't forget, next week we walk through the Big Book again with Chris Schroeder. Chris, have a great night, man. Monty, you take care. All right, buddy. Bye, bye, my friends. Please check out our other shows as well here at Take12Radio.com where we are wishing God's serenity for you. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. (laughs) 